Well, greetings, everyone, again at this wonderful Feast of Tabernacles. And isn't it wonderful to be here? And how great it's going to be when the whole world is going to be observing this same festival when Christ returns. I have a very simple question for you today, and that is, why feast? Why does God call this and so many of the other special days feast days? Of course, the Day of Atonement is a spiritual feast, but it's a day without food. All the rest of me talks about having food and feasting and that sort of thing. Why does God call it a feast? You know, sometimes the simplest questions are the ones that we pass right over. We never seem to think to ask the question, why does God call it a feast instead of some sort of uh, other day that uh, is called in, in this world where Easter or Christmas or whatever, they're not called feast, but this is called a feast. Notice that God used the tool of feast to spell out his plan of salvation for mankind. Back in Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, in verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. So these are feasts, but they are also times when we are to come together, when God summons us together convokes us together, summons us to meet together uh, for a feast, but also a holy convocation. These are my feasts. And then the first one that he mentions is the weekly Sabbath. So the weekly Sabbath is also called a feast. And then down in verse 4, he says, These are the feasts of the eternal holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. And then he begins to explain about the Passover and the days of unleavened bread and so forth. Now, all the feasts are related to the harvest season in Palestine. In one form or another, they are celebrations of a harvest season. Over in Exodus, the 23rd chapter, Exodus 23, uh, verse 14, it says, Three times you shall, have, or shall keep a feast to me in the year. So again, these are festival occasions, but when we speak of feast, we're talking usually about food. That's what we normally think of. He um, says, you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. So even the, the, the name of the feast, unleavened bread, has to do with food. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And then he says in verse 16, "...and the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, so first fruits of your labors, your work, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field." So we see that they're related to food, to harvest, to uh, the, the benefit of our labor throughout the year. Now consider how much eating... Uh, plays a part in the scriptures. It's kind of surprising when you think about it, if you just go through all the different places that food comes up in a special way uh, in the, the scriptures. Remember how Melchizedek met Abraham when he came from the uh, battle uh, that involved Kedar Leomer? Let's notice that over in the 18th chapter of Genesis and how Melchizedek met with Abraham after that time. Uh, notice there in verse 18, I'm sorry, the 14th chapter of Genesis, uh, Genesis 14, verse 18. He says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
He was a priest of God Most High. So here, uh, Melchizedek meets Abraham, and he brings out food. He presents him with a, a meal right after this time. And what took place here was very significant. He says, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So Abraham gave a tithe of the the spoils there. And we see that God is described here as the Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. And in this blessing, this time that took place there, there was a meal that was involved. It's interesting how many times we find this. For example, in the 18th chapter of Genesis, beginning in verse 1, we see that God, or the one who became Christ, appeared to Abraham. He says, Then the Eternal appeared to him, in verse 1, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass by, pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring you a morsel of bread. Now, it's kind of interesting how the, the, the Bible is written here. Uh, no doubt this is, must have been what he said. I'll bring you a morsel of bread or a small piece of, uh, of bread here. And yet, when we look at it, it was more than just a little piece of bread. Uh, it was more than a morsel. That you may refresh your hearts, and that, uh, that you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as you have said. Verse 6, So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to the young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had prepared, and of course the bread or the cakes that Sarah had made, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. So we find this here. This was right before the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah. And God blessed him in the verses 17 and 18. Uh, he talks about Abraham and how uh, he would become a mighty nation. But in this appearance, this special appearance, there was a, a feast that was set before them, food that was set before them. Now, in the ninth cha- 19th chapter, I'm only going to refer to it here, that's where the men came to Lot in Sodom. And what did he do? Again, he set before them food. He offered them a meal. Uh, we also have the blessing of Jacob involving, uh, uh, the, 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 well, the blessing of Jacob where his father... Uh, said, go out and prepare a meal for me that I may bless you. And we have that whole situation with Jacob and Esau that we're familiar with. But again, the blessing was to be accompanied or to follow a, a feast, a meal that was to be prepared for his father Isaac. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the second chapter of Acts, we see the New Testament church there and how it had begun uh, on this day of Pentecost. And we read there in verse 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, 
in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, some have taken this breaking of bread to mean a Eucharist or a uh, a Lord's Supper, and it had absolutely nothing to do with that whatsoever, as we will see from the context here. And again, this was on the, the day of Pentecost and those days that followed. And they continued steadfastly in their doctrine and so forth. And verse 43, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them amongst all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the eternal added to the church daily, or the Lord, in this case, added to the church daily, uh, those who are being saved. So even in describing the, the, the beginnings of the New Testament church, uh, one of the prominent features was the fact that they, they ate meals together. They, they shared their meal. They went from house to house in this particular case, a lot of potluck meals or whatever it was that they had there. And, and you have to ask, well, why is such a detail recorded in Scripture? What is so special about eating? And, and yet, as we go through the Scriptures, we could go to one after another after another, only a few that we're, we're going to be looking at here. And we find that food plays a prominent part in the fellowship of God's people. What about the, the Passover? The Passover is a meal. Uh, and the last Passover that Jesus kept with his disciples, we clearly see that they were eating a meal there, of course, it uh, being the, the Passover at that time. You know, if you think about it, if you just go through God's festivals, uh, you, you see that the Passover is a meal. It's a, a feast. And we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where we feast on unleavened bread and, of course, other things as well. And Pentecost is described as a feast and trumpets, of course. When we come to atonement, we have the opposite, where there is no food, but that's a prominent part of that day. So the lack of food sets that day apart from all of the other days. And then, of course, when we get to the Feast of Tabernacles and Last Great Day, again, here we're, we're feasting. And as we'll look at that a little bit later... We'll see that they, uh, they spent plenty of time feasting during the Feast of Tabernacles, and that is so prominent there. Now, uh, what about the marriage supper of the Lamb? Over in Revelation, the 19th chapter, verses 6 and 7, and again, I'm not going to take time to turn over there, but we have the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So when we are resurrected, when we are changed and made spirit beings, and this ceremony is going to take place, which we won't fully understand exactly how it's going to take place. And there's great speculation as to when and where and all that sort of thing. We're not going to address any of those questions today. But, but the fact of the matter is, here is the time when the church is going to be married to Christ, as it were. And we're going to have a feast at that time, a, a supper that is going to take place. And we can only speculate uh, as to, you know, how that works and, and so forth with eating as spirit beings. But it does describe it that way. Uh, there are scores of other instances mentioned in the sharing of food in both the Old and New Testaments. But I think that you get the point that 
there are many occasions where food was shared in special occasions uh, in both places. Now, there's something special about eating and enjoying the fruits of one's labors with others. You know, in addition to being physically enjoyable, when we share a meal, we are reminded that we are all human and that we uh, have something in common with one another. I say all human. I guess we could say as spirit beings we're going to share food of some sort in some way. Uh, there, there are analogies there, I suppose, but uh, it seems to be uh, very specific as well. But it does bring us to a certain commonality. You know, I once had a teacher that I was not real fond of. Uh, he seemed to be kind of a, a mean sort of fellow. And uh, we were on a field trip, and there was a time we sat down, and we, we just ate a kind of a box lunch or whatever it was, and I happened to be sitting at the table with him. Uh, I think I'd gotten myself in a little bit of trouble, and so I, I think I was uh, left to, to sit with him and the bus driver. And it was, it was quite an interesting occasion, uh, some of the things I learned there. But anyway, that's another side. But as we were sitting there eating, my, my heart was being softened toward him because just watching another human being do the very same thing I'm doing, enjoying food and, and really enjoying it, it, it changed me in a certain way. I, I remember that very distinctly. And I don't know about you, but when, when I share a meal with someone, even if it's my enemy, it does soften my heart in a certain way. Now, you may think that's weird and maybe I'm weird, but that's just the way it is. And I think if you analyze your own heart, your own mind, in situations where you have been, perhaps you as well have been affected in that way. Uh, it does seem to change things. I remember when we moved to, uh, to Canada, and we had one of the other, actually it was another minister that moved up there, and he was going to rent a, a particular house, and we went over with him to uh, see the house, and and uh, we sat down there, and it was an individual who was from, I think, Pakistan. It could have been another country, but one of those East, uh, uh, South, uh, what do they call uh, East Indian countries, uh, East India itself, uh, India or Pakistan, whichever it was there. And he offered us something to drink. And being, you know, uh, uh, Americans who just want to take care of business, rather than uh, have a feast or anything, we, we said, no, no, we, we, we all turned him down on it. And he still brought out something to drink because business was going to be done. And according to their custom, you don't do business until you have something to drink. You share something to drink. And it was a lesson to me of culture that I've never you know forgotten because there is a time when when you're doing business in that way, especially in some parts of the world, you do take time to have a meal. I remember a, a film that we had, uh, speaking of Mexico, again, this very same thing, that if you want to do business there, then you sit down, you have a meal, and maybe after a couple hours or so, or two hours, three hours of meal, then you might start talking business. But you don't talk business until after you've shared a meal. And when we go over to Hong Kong, uh, to do business. It's usually over a meal. So this is something about our nature, something about the way that we are as human beings, that sharing a meal kind of softens the, the whole approach to be able to receive uh, someone else's proposal or whatever it might be. Now, the feast teaches us specific lessons about eating and, and feasting. Uh, we don't know all of the reasons why God chose to uh, call these special celebrations feasts. Uh, 
Uh, and I think we need to, to understand that, that we, we can speculate. There are certain things we do know, but God may have other reasons besides the ones that, that we might think of. But I have five lessons here that we can learn about eating and feasting. And the first one is that it teaches us that God is the provider. Remember with Abraham and Melchizedek, uh, spoke of God as possessor of heaven and earth. God owns everything. And he controls our food supply, whether we like to think it or not, think of it or not. If he cuts off the rain, then we have problems. Now, I know we can irrigate, we can do all kinds of things, but even irrigation has its limits because we draw the water out of the ground and eventually we deplete the aquifers. Uh, the other aspect of it is that it becomes, there's a certain amount of salts in it and it, it can ruin the ground over a period of time. The, the ground becomes so uh, thick with the various uh, you know, uh, concentrations of the salts that, uh, from evaporation and everything, that the land can be uh, destroyed over a period of time. And so, whether we like to admit it or not, God has to provide for us. And of course, He had to provide the original food and, and everything else, otherwise man would never have been able to survive. In Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 16 and verse 11, It says here, You shall rejoice before the eternal your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Now, now let's continue verse 12. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your feast, and you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless widow who are within your gates. And it says, seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. Because God is going to bless us. And so we go off and we keep this feast because God has blessed us. And he says, you do this because the Lord your God or the eternal God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands. So you shall surely rejoice. God is the author of the unbelievable variety of, of tastes, of flavors, of colors, of textures, all the different varieties of food. Have you ever thought that if you sat down to a meal and everything was was kind of a gray color, how much that would take away from the enjoyment of the food. But God has made foods in all kinds of colors, reds and oranges and yellows and, uh, you know, uh, green. Uh, even, I guess, you can find some things in, in blue colors, although that's not a real common color for food. At least I can't think of anything right off. But uh, you've got purple, you know, plums and that sort of thing. You've got blueberries. You've got all these different colors. And they have different textures. Some things are soft. Some, some things are crunchy. Uh, some things have kind of stringy, like certain types of meat might be described as, as stringy or, or uh, vegetables. 
uh, you, you, you know, you, pomegranates, they, you have to, to work at it to get those little seeds out. There are all kinds of different foods that we can enjoy. And some are sweet and some are sour. Some are bitter. Some are, uh, we, some people call it spicy. Other people call it hot. Uh, some foods are rather bland. Uh, potatoes, uh, for example, I think are kind of bland, but uh, they're wonderful because they're a good place to put some gravy on it or some butter or salt and pepper, whatever, to spice it up in a certain sort of way. But God gives us all these things. He was the author of all these things. He created all these things. And he says that at the end of the year, when we bring our, our produce in during this Feast of Tabernacles or prior to it, that uh, God is, is going to bless us in the produce of our our land. And he is blessing our work, our labor, because fundamentally we can do all kinds of labor, but fundamentally somebody has to produce the food if we're going to live. And there was a time when most people worked in agriculture today, uh, it's, it's far less in terms of numbers, especially in our Western world and the more developed world where one farmer can feed lots of people. But nevertheless, uh, if it isn't for the farmer, uh, the rest of us are going to starve. We can make our iPods and all the, the fancy gadgets that we want to make. We can uh, go off and we can program games and all this type of thing. We can go on these various idol shows, American Idol, Canadian Idol. You know, Britain has talent, Australia has talent, all this sort of thing. Uh, you, you can do all those things, but without food, it, it's all worthless. It, it's meaningless. Uh, food is important, and God is the one who provides it for us. Uh, notice, let's go to um, uh, Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter. You know, unlike Abraham, who who understood uh, that it is God that possesses heaven and earth, and that it is God that provides all of our, our needs for us, there are people today that just don't realize it. They they don't fully appreciate the fact that God gives us these things. They just think that they, they can go out and, well, we can just grow it, we can produce it, and we don't need God. But when we come before God at these feasts and we recognize that there are these seasons and everything, it reminds us of the fact that God is our provider. Notice Deuteronomy 14 and verse 22. He says, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. So he's speaking of the, the grain, and he's speaking of a yearly uh, process here. And he's not talking about taking this and giving it to the Levite. He's talking about you shall eat before the eternal your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and of your new wine and your oil, are the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the eternal your God always. So by going to keep this feast, taking the, the, the physical results of our labors, as it were, to this place, and having holy convocations in the context of our feasting and appreciating the abundance of things that God has given to us and, as we're counting our blessings, uh, experiencing our blessings at that time, we do learn to fear the eternal, our God. In Zechariah 14, God is going to tell people that they have to come up and keep this wonderful feast. And, you know, that, that just amazes me because there are people that I, I've heard say that, oh, there's such a burden, such a burden. And 
Sometimes when I'm sitting at the Feast of Tabernacles having a wonderful meal, uh, I always have to remind myself that this is bondage. Because it really isn't bondage, of course, but I've been told that by so many people over the years that, well, all that is bondage. You're going back into bondage. You're going into legalism or whatever. And yet what a wonderful thing it is that we can come before God, enjoy wonderful food with wonderful friends and new acquaintances, and be able to, to share not only our food, but what we have in common, what has brought us there together, which is the truth of God. And, you know, we're looking forward to the time when the whole world is going to do that. Notice in Zechariah 14, verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Eternal of hosts, on them there will be no rain. You see, how God is going to get through to these people is he's going to cut off their food supply. That's really what's going to happen. No rain, no food, uh, given enough time. It may not, you know, one year you might get through, two years, but sooner or later you're going to have problems. And so uh, even in Egypt where they depend so much on the Nile River, and they may think, well, we don't depend on rain, but remember when Joseph went down there, there was famine all over the land, and they had to collect up grain for seven years. And if you cut off the rain supply upstream from Egypt, then Egypt's not going to have the Nile. So you have a, a, a situation where God, who controls the weather, is going to control, through the weather, he's going to control our food supply. So people can, these nations can send up representatives to, uh, to Jerusalem to learn about the feast and the meaning of it and to enjoy uh, their, the fruits of their labors or they can go back and they can labor but there'll be no fruits from it. Now man will learn <clears throat> who it is that provides for him and that's what God is going to have to do. He's going to have to teach mankind who it is that gives him all of these blessings. And when they do, they will enjoy the great abundance of his blessings because the whole world in time is going to have great abundance. And all these starving children that we sometimes see in faraway lands are not going to be there. They're not going to have bloated bellies and just skin and bones. They're going to be full-fleshed and, and happy and, and normal little children running about uh, enjoying life because they'll have abundance because God is the one that will give them to, give it to them when they are obedient to him. In the book of Joel, the second chapter, Joel 2, it shows that he uh, works with our food supply to get our attention. And there's coming a time when after the the, the locusts of one sort or another have destroyed the food and, and everything like that that it speaks of earlier in the book of uh, Joel. And verse 21, it gives the other side when God begins to bless Israel again. He says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open, past, the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. So here we have the pastures springing up, the trees that are bearing their fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield their strength. You know, we take it for granted, but those who are in agriculture know that even fruit-bearing trees uh, 
uh, it's, it's not a given every year. You can have the blossoms come out, and then you can have a frost that kills them off. And you might have a, a secondary one, depending on what kind of tree it is. But there, there are years when the, the fruit is lost, it's destroyed by bad weather. And sometimes you have wind or hail that destroys it. So God is going to give to his people uh, the, the, the tree that bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine yielding their strength. In other words, yielding uh, a great abundance. It says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the eternal your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first months. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So there's going to be such a, a great abundance there that uh, the, the vats are just going to overflow. And there's, there's going to be more than is needed. We're not going to have to worry and skimp and, and uh, be concerned about these things running out. But God is going to provide in a, a wonderful way. But you see, mankind has to learn where his food supply comes from. And when you read the book of Joel, you see that Israel is not obeying God. So God brings all these curses upon them. And then when he finally uh, gets our attention and we appreciate and know who our God is, then he pours out this wonderful abundance upon uh, his people. And of course, the Feast of Tabernacles that we're celebrating at this time pictures that time when there is going to be that great abundance for all of mankind because man will know where his blessings come from and we will be thankful and we will appreciate that and so that time will come in jeremiah 31 speaking of this feast of tabernacles uh, actually it's talking about the time that the feast of tabernacles pictures in jeremiah 31 beginning in verse 10 it says, Hear the word of the Eternal, O nations, and declare it in the isles that are off, far off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Eternal has redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Verse 12, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Eternal for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young are the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. This is talking about the future, my friends. And when you look at Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter, how it describes the Feast of Tabernacles, or God's festivals in general, the place where God has chosen to place His name. And it talks about taking the, the wheat and the wine and, the, and so forth. This is almost a direct parallel to it. The one is talking about the physical celebration of the feast, but here it's talking about, in a sense, the fulfillment of the feast when God blesses Israel at the end going on into the millennium. So this is uh, very closely aligned with Deuteronomy 14, uh, verses 22 through 26. And then along with this uh, abundance of food, when you have plenty of food and, and nice things to drink and everything, then there's usually a celebration of one sort or another. And it says, Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance, 
and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Eternal. So again, recognizing that God is the provider of all these wonderful blessings. Now, there's a second lesson that we can learn from the Feast of Tabernacles and all of God's festivals and why God, you know, not only allows us to feast, but commands us to feast and to rejoice. And that is that stoicism, asceticism, the attitude of, in order to please God, you've got to go without, you've got to uh, suffer somehow, you can't enjoy life. Uh, That whole idea is not God's way. Uh, Stoicism, asceticism are not God's way. God teaches us during these feasts that it is all right to enjoy the fruits of our labors. It's okay to enjoy those things. In fact, he, he commands us to rejoice and to use these things in that way. Now, over in Colossians, we see that there were individuals who were affecting the the people at Colossae, the church there, who were trying to tell them they shouldn't enjoy uh, these things in the keeping of God's festivals and Sabbaths. And they were uh, perhaps early Gnostics, as they are sometimes called. Uh, the different terms we might use for them. We're not sure exactly whether these were Jewish Gnostics or Gentile Gnostics. But at any rate, these were people that were coming along and and telling them they had to go without. And so here in Colossians 2.16, he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink. Don't let some philosopher, someone who has come along with commandments and doctrines and traditions of men, as it says there in verse 8, don't let them come along and judge you in food or in drink, saying you can't eat this, you can't drink that, or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath. Now, he's not talking about things that God never intended for food, but he's talking about within the laws of God, obviously, which are a shadow of things to come. The the feasts foreshadow future events. He says, but the body of Christ. That's the way it should be translated for anybody that's new. Uh, the word, word substance in the New King James it has a little note beside it if you have a marginal reference, and it says body. It comes from the word soma. It means the body. And you can compare that with the first chapter, verse 18, or the first chapter, verse 24, where it shows that the body of Christ is the church. And so he's saying here, don't let just, you know, some outsider come along and start judging what you can eat or drink concerning the festivals and new moon and Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come, but the body of Christ, the word is, is not there in the original. And substance should be body. But the body of Christ, let the body of Christ teach us how to observe these things. And, you know, the body of Christ certainly taught me about the festivals because I started attending services back in about 1964, and I didn't know how to keep these days. I didn't know what was, what was right or wrong concerning them. But the body of Christ, the church, taught me these things, what I was to do and what I could enjoy and what, what, I, what I shouldn't do. Now, he says, he goes on to say, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. This is where you get into this certain early Gnosticism of various stages to get to God through angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, the head Christ, from whom all the body, the church, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. 
And so he says, if you are there, you therefore died with Christ from the basic principles or elemental spirits of the world, why as a living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations such as do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Not the Old Testament laws, but commandments and doctrines of men. And these things have, indeed, he says, an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and notice neglect of the body, but of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, God is not against us enjoying uh, the fruits of our, our, our labors. In fact, in Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter, it, it really clearly shows the connection between the things that we're able to eat and the fact that we produce to bring them about. In Deuteronomy 14:26, as he's told us we could bring them up to the, the feast or turn it into money and bring that up and purchase things there. He says, you shall spend that money, verse 26, Deuteronomy 14, for whatever your heart desires for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Now, that, that's, isn't that amazing? God tells us we, we have to go up and rejoice. And yet people tell us that, oh, this is bondage. Uh, this, this is legalism. This is, this is harsh. And yet God tells us that he wants us to go up on these special occasions, these festivals, and he wants us to enjoy the, the fruits of our labors, what we have labored throughout the year, to be able to go up and really enjoy it in a special way, in special occasions with a, certainly, a certain godly purpose to it all, not just going out and having a, you know, a, a gluttonous feast, as the world might do, but having a, a wonderful feast in a proper atmosphere for the right purpose. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes is, according to the Jews, it, it's read during the Feast of Tabernacles. And when you read through the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon there is, is talking about how, uh, you know, he tried all these different things, might say wine, women, and song, and, and nothing ever satisfied. In the end, he, he was left empty. He built great works, uh, you know, structures, buildings, uh, gardens. Uh, he, he did all kinds of things. But in the end, there was a certain emptiness there with Solomon. And, and he recognized that death is going to come, and what good is any of it? How has it served us in any way, shape, or form? And so I, I'd like to call the book of Ecclesiastes what I saw on a bumper sticker going from Greenville, South Carolina one day up to Asheville, North Carolina, going up that mountain there. And uh, I saw this bumper sticker that said, In Search of the Eternal Buzz. And that's what I like to call Ecclesiastes because it is a search for something that will, will give you a buzz for eternity, an eternal buzz. And I imagine that whoever had that bumper sticker is still searching because you're not going to find it in this life. But isn't it interesting that Solomon does make several statements here about uh, this life and what is satisfying to a certain degree in this life. Along the way, he, he mentions three times something of value. 
Well, he doesn't find the real purpose of life in anything physical. Nevertheless, we see in Ecclesiastes, the second chapter, and verse 24, he says, Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? Now, while he recognized that nothing really satisfied, he saw that there's a certain benefit in this life, temporary as it may be, of enjoying the fruits of your labor, enjoying the food, the drink, other things, not just the physical food, but whatever your labor may be. Maybe you build bridges, maybe you build buildings or who knows what it is that you do, but to be able to be satisfied in your your work and to be able to come home and have a nice meal and to be able to be satisfied by the, the food that you grew or that you were able to purchase. Notice Ecclesiastes 3, uh, verses 12 and 13. He says, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. So when we sit down to a meal that we have either grown or we have purchased because of our labors, uh, it's a gift of God. And we should see it as a gift of God. We should recognize, again, the first point of where it comes from. It's a gift of God. And, uh, well, let's notice over in the fifth chapter. The fifth chapter, verse 18. It says, Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage or his inheritance, his heritage. So, you know, eating and drinking, enjoying the fruits of our labor is good. God is not against that. We don't have to uh, go off to some monastery and have bread and water or to go without, as some people have done, these individuals who've taken a, a vow of poverty and this sort of thing. Uh, it seems so admirable to human beings, but that's not really God's way. That's not what God intended. And God intended that we should enjoy the fruits of our labors. And when we come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, even if we haven't had everything that we wanted all through the feast, we have a little bit more. You know, we have people some places in the world who may only be able to enjoy one meal a day. And sometimes because of droughts or civil unrest and everything, uh, that may be a luxury just to have one meal a day. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, even those individuals usually have a little bit more, maybe a little bit more special meal, or they, they may have three meals on that, that occasion. Uh, but we have people living in different parts of the world that don't have as much. But for the Feast of Tabernacles, we're able to really enjoy ourselves in a special way. And that's good, and that's right that we are able to do so. And God doesn't say that, well, you've got to skimp and, and you, you can't enjoy yourself. You know, one of the, the greatest lessons I learned when I started saving my tithe faithfully was that I could go to the feast and I could spend that money for a nice 
steak dinner, although I don't eat as many steaks now as I did when I was younger and thought that that's the only thing that there was to eat was a steak. But um, at least if I was going to spend money for something. Uh, Nevertheless, I I learned that I could take that money and I could spend it for that purpose and I didn't have to feel guilty. It it wasn't like the the, the Christmas club where you you buy all the stuff on credit and then you spend the, the rest of the year trying to pay off your credit cards. You see, if we obey God, and that's important, that we obey God's law of saving that festival tithe, then we can go off to the feast and we can really enjoy the feast and not feel guilty and recognize that God has given us that privilege and that opportunity and saying, enjoy it. Notice here in... um, Let's go over to Exodus, the 23rd chapter. Exodus 23, in verse 16. Again, it says here, And the feast of harvest, the firstfruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you've gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. So it's okay to enjoy the fruits of our labors. And if God has blessed you with much, you can enjoy much. And if it's not as much, will you still enjoy, hopefully, more than you would at some other time in the year. But in this rejoicing, while we're rejoicing, while we're eating, while we're drinking... There are warnings. Uh, This is not to be just a a gluttonous orgy that God has called us to. Uh, Sometimes I think people have looked at the feast that way. And some people have almost thought it was the feast of booze, B-O-O-Z-E or Z-E, depending on where you're from, uh, as opposed to the feast of booths, B-O-O-T-H-S. There are some who have misunderstood it. And yet God is not the author of gluttony. He is not the author of drunkenness or excess in appetite or behavior of any kind. This is not, as I said, the feast of booze. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, and verse 21, we find that even during the Passover, the Corinthians, who were probably used to feasting in a carnal sense, uh, especially those who had a bit more, uh, were actually getting drunk on the night of the Passover. In First uh, Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 21, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. So instead of sharing with one another... There were individuals who were going without, while others were having so much, especially to drink, that they were getting drunk. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So he he corrects them rather soundly there for their approach. Now, we're told in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 15, He says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. And then he goes on to say, down about verse 18, he says, and do not be drunk with wine, 
in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So there are numerous admonitions not to use alcohol to excess. And yet some have gone to the feast and done exactly that. And that is not what God has called us to do. The same thing with gluttony, just eating way too much. In Proverbs 25, 23, sorry, Proverbs 23, and verse 19. Proverbs 23, verse 19. He says, Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine-bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. I remember visiting uh, an individual one time. I don't think he ever came into the church. Uh, he might have attended for a short time. But I remember visiting him on one occasion and I, I'm sure he was never baptized. But I, I went over to his house, and he took me out back, and we were sitting there, and he had this huge barbecue. I mean, it wasn't, it was not a man. It, he does bricks, and then he put grates across it, and it was probably at least six foot long. And this is just a small house that he lived in. And he was just explaining that he liked to have his friends over, and, and they would have lots of meat. I mean, they'd fill that up with meat, and they would just gorge themselves on meat. I'd, I'd never run into that in my life before, where I, there was, it was so clearly that it was just meat and alcohol, and they just had some of the biggest parties you could ever imagine. Uh, that, apparently, is what is being described here in the book of Proverbs. He said, don't mix it with wine-bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe the man with rags. Now, of course, meat can refer to other things in the King James uh, other than just flesh, but uh, I think the sense here is, in this particular case, with flesh, just people just eat, eat a lot of it. And so there are people who will go off and they'll order a, you know, a 40-ounce steak or something. And I remember in, in Phoenix, Arizona, Scottsdale, there's a place called Pinnacle Peaks, and it wasn't during the feast, but you could go out there, and they had a 32-ounce T-bone. That was their specialty. Now, of course, a T-bone has, has bone and has a certain amount of fat, so it's not nearly as much as it sounds like. But I remember at that time, this is back in about 1968, that if you ate one and uh, they gave you, you ordered a second one, if you ate the whole thing, they would give it to you free. Now, I never tried that, thankfully, but can you imagine... Uh, there are people, no doubt, that try that. In fact, there's a, a program that we see up in Canada, Man versus Food. And he goes into places that find that the biggest hamburgers, the biggest uh, sandwiches, whatever it is, and tries to eat it. You know, that's not what God wants of a festival. This is, this is totally contrary to his way of thinking. We go there and we enjoy things, but we enjoy it in the proper balance. And sometimes when we have a lot of extra money, and we can buy whatever we want, uh, it, it demands a little bit of character. And we learn to use temperance when we go about this sort of thing. I think that many people go off the feast, and when they first start going to the feast, especially if they're young, they, they just go hog wild. Pardon the, the expression hog wild, but they, they go hog wild, as they say, and they just they eat like a hog. And you hear these stories of people coming back from the Feast of Tabernacle and they say, well, I gained 10 pounds or 14 pounds or whatever. And I wonder, how in the world can somebody gain that much? I never could do that if I tried. But 
Nevertheless, some people just put on more weight than others, so you can have a skinny glutton as well as a, as a hefty glutton, and that's, that's another story altogether. But, you know, God is not calling us to gluttony during these feasts. Now, Deuteronomy 14 not only tells us about keeping the feast, but it also instructs us on what is good for food and what is not. If you, if you notice the same chapter in Deuteronomy 14, it, it gives, before it talks about the going off to the place that God has chosen to place his name, the early part of Deuteronomy 14 is giving instruction on what is intended for food and what is not. And this world is going to have to learn that. They're going to have to learn that some things God never intended for man to put in his mouth. But you can go to all kinds of places around this world and people will eat just about anything. And there doesn't seem to be any end of what people will eat. And people are so happy to eat lobster and crab. And, well, if you look at any kind of a cooking show on television, it's almost always some unclean food. And those are considered to be the delicacies. You see, God has a very different kind of feast. We feast on those things that he created for us to be able to eat. To be able to eat if we give thanks and if that food is sanctified, set apart by the word of God and prayer. You see, sometimes people use that particular verse. I think you know the one I'm referring to. They use that verse to say that if you just give thanks for it, it's okay. But they forget the part that is sanctified, set apart by the Word of God and prayer. The Word of God, by prayer and the Word of God, or whichever order it is. The Word of God tells us what is set apart for good food. And it is interesting that in Deuteronomy 14, where it talks about uh, going off to keep the feast, right before that, he tells us what it is that is good for food. Now, we could go to any number of scriptures that talk about this situation of uh, how we are to use temperance and what we, we eat and how we go about life. We're not to be wine-bibbers. We're not to uh, be drunkards. We're not to be gluttonous and that sort of thing. But I think you, you get the point. Lesson three, he blesses us with good things and expects us to share with others. We're to share our abundance with those who do not have as much. Notice over in Nehemiah, this perhaps has been read already in the feast, maybe on more than one occasion, but back in Nehemiah, the eighth chapter, when they were starting to keep the feast again, they kept the Feast of Trumpets, and then they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. And in verse 9, it says, Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra the priest and the scribe and Levites who taught the people said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God, or the eternal your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat. In other words, eat the rich, the rich foods. Drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the eternal our God. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So they went out, the people went out, verse 12, and they went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. So they were to remember others. And this is certainly one of the great lessons of the Feast of Tabernacles, is that we don't just go off to the feast to consume it all upon ourselves. 
Yes, we can enjoy the fruits of our labors, but we have to do so with a certain temperance that we don't overindulge, getting drunk, becoming gluttonous where you know, our, our bellies are swelled and we're you know, wondering, well, why did I eat so much? And the other thing is that we are to share with others. We're to take time for others. And, you know, even in the use of our time, I've seen in years past, mostly, mostly in past years, where people are so anxious to get to their activity that they'll literally run over somebody just so they can get out of the hall so they can go off and do their own thing. And that's not what God intended. God intended for us to care for one another. Uh, notice um, Luke, the 14th chapter. Now, not everybody has enough abundance to share with others, but if you don't have abundance of, of uh, wealth to be able to share with others, maybe you're getting the feast on uh, just a minimal amount there, and hopefully others will help you to have a wonderful feast in a physical sense as well, that they'll take you out to eat. And I hope that everyone uh, has taken time or will take time to take someone out, someone that is less fortunate, uh, less blessed, you might say. But nevertheless, you have time as well. And so I hope that if you don't have money to help others, maybe you've got the time to be able to babysit somebody's children so that some couple who has two or three or four children, small children, has time just by themselves. They have that special occasion. Even some of our young people, uh, two or three uh, teenage girls uh, could get together and, and volunteer to babysit for some children while the parents have the opportunity to go out. But the sharing, and especially in, in food, is uh, what is what is intended here. Notice in uh, Luke 14, verse 12, it says, Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Now, we, we have tended to be separated by time and distance, and so many of us are not able to see our relatives except on these special occasions. And so often we get together as friends and family, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and we really want to spend time together. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we cannot neglect what Jesus said. He said, don't just spend it with your comfortable friends and relatives, but as he says here, when you give a dinner, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, well, this is a feast that we're celebrating right now, when you give a feast or go to a feast, we could say in this context, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because you cannot repay, they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So as we share our feast, let us bring others into our families, into our group of friends. It doesn't mean that you can't spend time with your friends, but what he's saying here is, do not neglect those who have less. Stop what you're doing long enough to look and see that there's somebody over there that may be brand new, maybe their first feast, they're uncomfortable, they don't uh, know what to do, they, uh, they, they might not have that much to be able to take them to the feast and all, and, and, and bring them in. 
And don't neglect the people in your own congregation or the congregation next to you where there are people who just may not be, quote, as much on the in crowd. I hope we don't have that, but, you know, sometimes that is the case where somebody is, is much more popular or much less popular. And it gives us the opportunity to uh, be able to share with that individual a special opportunity. You might not have that opportunity during the year because that person may live far away or you may live far from, from services, but it gives you the opportunity to spend time with that individual. Now, the fourth lesson is that we are living in temporary dwellings. This, this body that we have is temporary. And God wants us to know that it is temporary. And so he made us in such a way that we have to constantly be refueled. We have to drink. We have to eat. And one of the lessons of the Feast of Tabernacles is that we are living in temporary dwellings. Notice in Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, and verse 42, he says, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths or temporary dwellings. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the eternal your God. So we are to remember that they came out and they lived in temporary dwellings. And our, our home that we seek for is not here. As it says in Hebrews 11, they look for a city whose foundations is not made by man. Uh, the, the faithful men and women of old were looking to another time, another life. And we recognize that uh, even in our feasting and everything, that we are living in, in temporary dwellings. We need this food. It's good. It's wonderful. But it's not going to last. Because how many times have you eaten such a big meal that you say, oh, I don't think I'll eat for a week. And the next morning you're up and hungry again. It reminds us of that. In Psalm, the 90th chapter... Psalm 90 and verse 10. In fact, I gave his whole sermon on this subject on one occasion where uh, the Feast of uh, Booths or Temporary Dwellings is to remind us that we are living in temporary dwellings, our temporary body that we have here. We're only here for a, a very short period of time. Psalm 90 and verse 10. He says, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, or for, for as the fear of you, so is your wrath. In verse 12, so teach us to number our days. We are to ask God to teach us to, to understand, to comprehend the shortness of of our lives, the number of our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So we keep this feast, all these feasts, and we recognize that God is the one who is the provider. We recognize that he wants us to enjoy our labors. We recognize that we are to share these things with others. But we also recognize that this life is temporary, that we're dwelling in temporary booths, as it were. And God wants us to, to fully understand that. That's the fourth reason. Now, the fifth lesson is that this physical is a type of the spiritual. The, the physical feasting is a type of the spiritual feasting. In Malachi, the first chapter, and verse 6, 
It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the eternal of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? And yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? He says, you offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord or the table of the eternal is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? He says, offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the eternal of hosts. You know, the, the offerings that they offered up there were, were offering up to God. That was God's table. When we go up to the Feast of Tabernacles or any of the feasts, we're sitting down at God's table, so to speak. And, you know, we, we should not despise that table. And we should recognize that we're not there just to enjoy the physical, but the physical food is a type of the spiritual. Let's notice over in John, the sixth chapter, that we find Jesus clearly making the analogy between the physical and the spiritual and how we, we feed on one and feed on the other. In John 6, verse 30, it says, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, uh, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. Uh, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. You see, they, they didn't really fully understand the very first point we made, that God is the provider. He says, uh, they didn't understand that. He says, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So it isn't just the physical manna that God gives, uh, gave Israel. He's speaking here of the bread of his, his own life. And Christ's life is exemplified in the Word of God, and especially in the New Testament here. Uh, we, we have, you know, His words, and we are to feed on His words. We are to feast on them. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Uh, then He said to them, or they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And then down in verse 57, as the living Father, Jesus said, sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So, the, the physical feasting is a type of the, the spiritual, that we are to go there and we are to feed on Jesus Christ. We are to feed on the words of God. And so when we're here at the feast, we have an opening night service, which I hope, hope everybody was able to attend that. Uh, I, I, I hate to miss that. I don't know that I've, I can't ever remember a time when I did miss that opening evening, but it's so exciting being there at that time. And yet I know that many people don't plan properly and do miss that. But there's not, nothing you can do at this point in time for this year, but you can for next year. But on the first day, we normally have two services. And then every day during the feast, we have a service in the morning. Sometimes there might be an afternoon service on the Sabbath. And then, of course, the last great day, we have two services once again.
And if we just come here and have physical food and go to Disney World or uh, go off fishing one day or decide that we want to take in this attraction and we miss that, we're missing the whole purpose of the feast because the physical is a type of the spiritual. We enjoy the fruits of our labors. We enjoy this physical food which sustains our physical body, but we need the spiritual food to sustain our spirit, our, our mind, our heart, our, you know, God's spirit within us. That united spirit of God's spirit and the spirit in man, which is growing to a new man. We absolutely do need that. You know, we are here to learn to fear the eternal, our God, always. That's, that's the purpose of these special occasions. Now, God has given us this wonderful feast to learn important lessons. And uh, throughout this feast, we hear many lessons, maybe on leadership and being teachers, and who knows what you've you know, heard this year as far as uh, wonderful lessons that have been given. But there's also a lesson in the very term that we use for these special occasions, that being feast. God's feast teaches us that He is the one that provides. He is the provider of all these physical things that we enjoy in life. That He wants us to enjoy the fruits of our labors and to be able to rejoice when we uh, enjoy them. But He also wants us to do so properly, and He's neither ascetic nor is He given to dissipation, gluttony, or drunkenness. So we are to do so in a, in a proper godly manner, not in a, a worldly, physical manner. He also wants us to rejoice in our blessings and to share them with others. That's a very important part of this feast, is to share with others who may not have as much, either in terms of people spending time with them or in terms of physical food, uh, whatever it is, we need to share our lives with others. And God wants us to know that, that we're only here temporarily, that we're living in temporary dwellings, eating temporary food in a temporal body, and we're not going to be here for all of eternity in this, this uh, temporal body. So he wants us to know that we're only temporary, that this life is not yet the promised land. And finally, we learn that the physical feasting that we enjoy is a type of the spiritual feast that we are to get, the spiritual food that we are to take in and to chew on, as it were, and to meditate upon and to take back with us, which can last a whole lot longer than the physical food. This time pictures the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on this earth when plenty and prosperity will be available to all, and God speed that day. But the time also shows us how to live truly, how to truly live, how to properly enjoy and rejoice in the fruits of our labors until that day comes.